0: One evening, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart. What an entrance he made. It's not a spectacular emotional thing, but very real. Something happened at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been silence. Silence. He filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I've never regretted opening the door to Christ, and I never will. In the joy of this new relationship, I said to Jesus Christ, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything that I have belongs to you. Let me show you around. The first room was the study, the library. In my home, this room of the mind is very, a very small room with very thick walls. But it is a very important room. In a sense, it is the control room of the house. He entered with me and looked around at the books on the bookcases, the magazines upon the table, and the pictures upon the walls. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable Strangely, I had not felt self-conscious about this before, but now that he was there looking at these things, I was embarrassed. Some books were there that his eyes were too pure to hold, to behold. On the table, there were a few magazines that a Christian had no business reading. As for the pictures on the walls, the imaginations and thoughts of the mind, some of these were shameful. Red-faced, I... Turned to him and said, Master, I know that this room needs to be cleaned up and made over. Will you help me make it what it ought to be? Certainly, he said, I'm glad to help you. First of all, take all the things that you are reading and looking at, which are not helpful, pure, good and true, and throw them out. Now, put on the empty shelves the books of the Bible. Fill the library with scripture and meditate on it day and night. As for the pictures on the walls, you will have difficulty controlling these images, but I have something that will help. He gave me a full-size portrait of himself. Hang this centrally, he said, on the wall of the mind. From the study, we went into the dining room, the room of appetites and desires. I spent a lot of time and hard work here trying to satisfy my wants. I said to him, this is a favorite room. I am quite sure you will be pleased at what we serve. He seated himself at the table with me and asked, What is on the menu for dinner? Well, I said, my favorite dishes. Money, academic degrees and stocks with newspaper articles of fame and fortune as side dishes. These were things I liked. Secular fare. When the food was placed before him, he said nothing. But I observed that he did not eat it. I said to him, Master, don't you care for this food? What is the trouble? He answered, I have food to eat that you do not know of. If you want food that really satisfies you, do the will of the Father. Stop seeking your own pleasures, desires, and satisfaction. Seek to please him. That food will satisfy you. There at the table, he gave me a taste of the joy of doing God's will. What flavor! There is no food like it in the world. It alone satisfies. From the dining room, we went into the living room. This room was intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. He said, This is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It is a secluded and quiet place, and we can find fellowship together here. Well, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in close companionship. He promised, I will be here every morning. Meet me here, and we will start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room. He would take a book of the Bible from the case. We would open it and read it together. He would unfold to me the wonder of God's saving truths. My heart sang as he shared the love and grace he had toward me. These were wonderful times. However, little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I'm not sure. I thought I was too busy to spend regular time with Christ, This was not intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss days now and then. Urgent matters would crowd out the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. I remember one morning rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. I passed the living room and noticed that the door was open. Looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace, and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, he is my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as my savior and friend, and yet I am neglecting him. I stopped and turned and hesitantly went in. With a downcast glance, I said, Master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you I'd be here every morning to meet with you. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at great cost. I value your friendship. Even if you cannot keep the quiet time for your own sake, do it for mine. The truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he wants me to be with him and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart. But every day, find time when, with your Bible and in prayer, you may be together with Him. Before long, he asked, "Do you have a workroom in your home?" Out in the garage of the home of my heart, I had a workbench and some equipment, but I wasn't doing much with it. Once in a while, I would play around with a few little gadgets, but I wasn't producing producing anything substantial. I let him out there. He looked over the workbench and said, Well, this is quite well furnished. What are you producing with your life for the kingdom of God? He looked at one or two little toys that I had thrown together on the bench and held one up to me. Is this the sort of thing that you are doing for others in your Christian life? Well, I said, Lord, I know it isn't much, and I really want to do more, but after all, I don't seem to have the strength or the skill to do more. Would you like to do better? He asked. Certainly, I replied. All right, let me have your hands. Now relax in me and let my spirit work through you. I know that you are unskilled, clumsy, and awkward, but the Holy Spirit is the master workman. And if he controls your hands and your heart, he will work through you. Stepping around beside me, he put his strong hands under mine. He held the tools in his skilled fingers and began to work through me. The more I relaxed and trusted him, the more he was able to do with my life. He asked me if I had a rec room where I went for fun and fellowship. I was hoping he would not ask about that. There were certain associations and activities that I wanted to keep to myself. One evening when I was on my way out with some buddies... He stopped me with a glance and asked, Are you going out? I replied, Yes. Good, he said. I would like to go with you. Oh, I answered rather awkwardly, I don't think, Lord Jesus, that you would really enjoy where we are going. Let's go out tomorrow night. Tomorrow night we will go to a Bible class at church, but tonight I have another appointment. I am sorry, he said. I thought that when I came into your home, we were going to do everything together to be close companions. I just want you to know that I am willing to go with you. Well, I mumbled, slipping out the door. We will go someplace tomorrow night. That evening, I spent some miserable hours. I felt rotten. What kind of a friend was I to Jesus, deliberately leaving him out of my life, doing things and going places that I knew very well he would not enjoy? When I returned that evening, There was a light in his room, and I went up to talk it over with him. I said, Lord, I've learned my lesson. I know that I can't have a good time without you. From now on, we will do everything together. Then we went down into the rec room of the house. He transformed it. He brought new friends, new excitement, new joys. Laughter and music have been ringing through the house ever since. One day I found him waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, There's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it is in a hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few square feet. In that closet, behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I, I, I went up with him, and as we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed to the door. I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet? I said to myself, this is too much. I am not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this smell, you are mistaken. I will go out on the porch. Then I saw him start down the stairs. When one comes to know and love Christ... The worst thing that can happen is to be separated from him. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you will have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't got the strength to do it. Just give me the key, he said. Authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. With trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it, walked over to the door, opened it, entered took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting in there and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it. It was all done in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. A thought came to me. Lord, is there any chance that you would take over management of the whole house and operate it for me as you did that closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my life what it ought to be? His face lit up. He replied, I'd love to. That is what I want to do. You cannot be a victorious Christian in your own strength. Let me do it through you and for you. That is the way. But, he added slowly, I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property is not mine. Dropping to my knees, I said, Lord... You have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, I am going to be the servant. You are going to be the owner and master. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house, describing its assets and liabilities, location and situation. I eagerly signed the house over to him alone for time and eternity. Here I said, here it is. All that I am and all that I have forever. Now you run the house. I'll just remain with you as a servant and friend. Things are different since Jesus Christ has settled down and has made his home in my heart. Some of you have heard
1: that before, haven't you? A little saying, my heart, Christ's home. A little short story. For some of you, it's probably brand new. You've never, you've never heard that before. Um, the reason I started my sermon today with Pastor Chris reading this is because I think it does a really good job of illustrating a point that I want to focus on today as we begin our, our continue on with our study that we started, our kind of our focus we started a few weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, the first part of January, I just felt compelled as, as I had a particular verse in my very first sermon of the year from Psalm 16, that we should spend a few weeks kind of parked here. And and this, this story you're going to see has a lot to do with explaining a dimension of that. The verse we parked in Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. For these Sundays in January, we've been taking time to just consider how can we, in very real and practical ways, make 2016 the year of God's presence for each of us. How can we live in the real and the life-altering presence of God in our everyday lives, and as a result, experience what Psalm 16 says, experience joy and pleasure, true joy and true pleasure, something better than we could ever experience without Jesus in our lives. And this short story, My Heart, Christ's Home, helps us understand a, a particular thing that I want to f- focus on today as we continue with this focus on this on this text and it's it's this living in God's presence is first and foremost about one's private world it's about our secret life it's not about external things that we do it's not about the external visible religious activities that we participate in. And a lot of times when we want to say, I want to live in the presence of God or be closer to Jesus, what we focus on is external activity. And this, this short story helps us understand that that's, that's not right because isn't what my heart, Christ's home, communicate communicating about what's going on inside? It's a picture of God and us communicating to each other, with each other, interacting with each other, us adjusting as the Lord um, points things out and helps us, helps us do what we couldn't do well, now do it very well. It's about God being with us and, and helping us, and, and sometimes even pointing things out that we don't like. And it's all within the confines of our heart. The title is What? My Heart, Christ's Home. It's about our private world, it's about the secret life that we have with God. But I want us to understand something today. And I prayed, I was in the preparation of this and praying this morning. I said, my prayer was, God, help me to somehow communicate this truth that God has something phenomenal for his children. And that's something that we maybe don't give the attention to. I think Jen, we don't give the attention to that we need to if we're going to have a life honestly living in his presence. Because in his presence is the joy and the pleasure that God desires for you, that I desire for me and I desire for you. See, listen, both our our secret life with God or our our heart life with God and our visible, public, religious life are essential. They're They're both absolutely necessary for a healthy Christian life. But the private life must precede the public. And very often what we do is we just focus on the public, meaning what other people see, attendance and activities and participation, and we think no one would really know that we neglect the private, or maybe we don't even know how to put energy into the private, and that's what we've been talking about these weeks. The private must be real and alive and vibrant for the public life to be authentic and effective. That's the key. It starts in the private. So for today, I want to look at a section of Scripture where Jesus talks about exactly this. The necessity for private, for private presence with Him before public religious activity. Living in the presence of God, starting in the private world. So grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I want to help us understand this. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read one section and skip to the next section because we're going to skip over what we looked at last week. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. You there? Beware of practicing your, religious, your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will not be your giving will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is, who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now slip over to verse 16. Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's stop right there. Let's begin By putting this section, this teaching of Jesus, in its proper context. This teaching is found in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a very specific intention. Matter of fact, I would say this. If you don't understand the intention of the Sermon on the Mount, and you try to read the Sermon on the Mount in bits and pieces, it will really mess up your ability to to serve God in the way that He wants you to serve Him. To understand the, the good life He wants to give you. He'll just simply recreate another law when he's trying to do exactly the opposite. So Jesus has a very specific intention in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching about genuine kingdom living. Living in an awareness of his presence. That's what kingdom living is. It's, it's living in his presence, what we're talking about this month. And how that living in his presence brings inter, internal transformation. He's trying to say, listen, if you're in my presence, in my kingdom, and you live like this, you're going to change from the inside out, and as you change from the inside out, you're going to literally, from that abundance inside of you, act and think and feel differently than you would working from the outside in. That's the intentions of the Sermon on the Mount. The transformation, he says, is this. This is the If you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the transformation that he's looking for is this. He says that you will live or be where your righteousness is is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because they go, these guys lived to just live by the external. All they kept all the rules. And a lot of you have been taught that that's what your life in Christ is about. All the rules. And Jesus says something that that makes you a lot of times, a lot of people dismiss the Sermon on the Mount. They go, those guys gave all their effort to it, and man, how could I ever do more? And he says, listen, if you live my way, you will actually have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the intention of the Sermon on the Mount is this. He says, if you live in my presence, what's going to happen is I'm going to change your heart. And out of your heart through internal transformation, you're going to be transforming. You're going to now want to be different. And in fact, you're going to be different on the inside, which will translate to the outside as opposed to just on the outside trying to have some level of external obedience. He's contrasting a life lived genuinely in his presence with, he's contrasting that with external religious conformity, which he refers to here as what? Hypocrisy. Saying, oh yeah, I want it. I'm doing this, but doing it for really a false reason. He's, he calls it, he's contrasting this genuine Christian life with hypocrisy, and he defines these people, the hypocrisy of these religious leaders called scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is showing in this section of scripture that the difference between the genuine person and the hypocrite is the secret life. It's what goes on inside the heart in private is compared to what goes on on the outside that everybody else sees. Living in the real and life altering presence of God in our everyday lives will result in true joy and pleasure. That results in that, he's saying, is a matter of the heart. It comes from the inside and works its way out. So Jesus looks at three regularly practice spiritual activities things that for thousands of years people have done in their in their in their religious observance of their faith christian and non-christian he looks at these three things these religious activities giving praying and fasting and shows how we can and should participate in these but we should do them with right motives so that we will experience His blessing, which he's saying is the experience of true joy and true peace. Now to get understanding, let's start with a question. Did you see a pattern when we read the text from Matthew chapter 6? Three times it says that our Father, who is in secret, in other words in private, wants to reward us and that reward is tied to the motives of our hearts and our lives. Let's understand something to start today. God desires to reward you. He desires to bless you. Listen again to these verses. Look at verses, starting in verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Slide down to verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will what? Reward you. Look at verses 17 and 18. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Notice that he's not saying that we, if we'll do any of these things. He says you will give to the poor. You, you will pray and you will fast. And so he says you when you fast anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God wants to reward you. Sometimes, you live in a false belief that God's against you. Friends, nothing could be further than the truth. God is absolutely for every one of you and it says here He desires to reward you. It's a very clear picture. Now we have to think about then, what is the reward he's talking about? Is he saying, if you really live in my presence, I'll give you the Powerball numbers. So you'll win $1.6 billion. Is that what he's saying at all? No. What is the reward he's talking about? Let's think first of all, what it's not. What is he not saying it is? It's not, he says, the admiration and praise and honor that comes from other people. Friends, understand something. God understands this, and we generally don't. Human praise and admiration is fickle. And Jesus is a great example of that. One day, they'll hail you as king, and the next day, they'll shout crucify. There's probably a few football players who understand that right now. Think of that. Put it in real life context. Miss a 27-yard field goal at the end of a football game that will give give you the game and put you into the next round of the playoffs and the whole state wants your head on a pole. Right? Human praise is fickle. One day they hail you as king, the next day they say, crucify you. But there's something that God understands about you and me and it's true because we live in a broken and a fractured world world because of the world we live in because of woundings in our past because of things we've experienced because we so desire to feel good about ourselves because oftentimes we don't what happens is we crave human praise and honor and I'd say this especially in religious circles there's a lot of people in the world when the Jesus isn't part of their life or at least religiosity isn't part of their lives they have this kind of attitude I don't give a rip what you think about me You met a person like that ever? But especially in religious circles, people want people to believe that they're spiritual. I lived in Louisiana for quite a while. And they said, they didn't say spiritual. They said you're spiritual. You want to be seen as spiritual. I'm not sure what spiritual is, but people want to believe they were. Everybody want to put on a religious face so they appear spiritual. Maybe we'd say it this way. It appears you got it all together. So that when you come to your church family and everybody says, Who is the spiritual one? They go, That person right there. That person's my hero. Maybe we have that thing inside of us to be looked at like that because we're not really certain of who we are in Christ. I think it's a big part of it. We don't understand that truly we are one in whom Christ dwells and delights even though the Scriptures tell us it over and over. It's the, it's, the, it's the most common thing woven through all the pages of Scripture is God's extraordinary love for you. He's orchestrated everything in all of creation to prove it. But somehow we just aren't certain of who we are in Christ. Or we have maybe lived our entire lives because of false beliefs about how we gain value And we've lived our whole lives trying to earn the favor of people and the favor of God, and we just are always trying to measure up. Whatever the reason is, because of those things, we love to hear how well we did on something. We love to be praised. We love for people to tell us how wonderful we are. Matter of fact, oftentimes, we always talk about the good things we do so that people will say, oh, you are wonderful. Why? Because it's showing the fact that we are very insecure inside. And it's showing that we have human pride that says, I want to be, appear to be better or greater or above other people. And friends, that woundedness, because that's really what it is, it's brokenness, it's woundedness, can slip into our spiritual lives. Matter of fact, I think it's completely integrated into our humanity, and therefore it's integrated so easily into our human life. That's why we have to see the truth of Scripture and let that rewire our thinking about what's true. That makes sense? That's why Jesus illustrates how our motives can become twisted. That's what he's talking about here. He says, even in our spiritual activities, we can do these things that God intends to be good and to helpful. We can do those in a way um, because we simply long for the applause of people as our reward. So what's he saying? He says, you can give for the wrong reason in verse 2. You can give, why? So that you're honored. He says, you can pray, and we know prayer is a good thing, right? But He says, you can pray just to be seen by other people. And go, oh, that person's a great prayer. You're filling up some insecurity in your life. You're doing it just to be honored by people. Verse 5 says, you can do that, and you'll have your reward. He says, you can fast. Make yourself appear disheveled and, and, and talk about, oh, I'm giving this up for Jesus. You can fast in such a way just to be noticed by other people. He says, in all those cases, you have your reward. But Jesus wants us to know that human praise, oh man, that's great that you fasted, oh, you're the greatest prayer. You're the spiritual one. Know that human praise is an empty substitute for a godly reward. Because what God has is so much better. Church, the real reward that God offers to us Is himself. That's isn't that the heart of my heart, Christ's home, the little story. What was Jesus offering? Himself, be with me. That's what he wants us to see here. Look at verses six and eight, six and eighteen rather. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 18. So that your fasting will not be done, noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What's he saying here? He's saying our Father is in secret. NIV, if you read the NIV, it says He's in the unseen. He is unseen. Um, and when we function... In that world of not being noticed by people, we we are alone together with God. That's what in secret is. When we function in secret, he's saying he's in secret, and when we go in secret, we are then with him. We're in his presence. That's what he's trying to connect. He's saying all the external religious activity can be done externally, but he's not really there. He said, I dwell in secret. And when I'm in secret... And I can be in secret in a crowd. I can be in secret surrounded by 10 million people. It's a condition of the heart. When I, am in, when I am in secret, doing it with my life with Him, for Him, when I'm with Him, I'm in His presence because He is in secret. He becomes our reward. We get to really know and experience Him. We hear His voice for ourselves. And I've come to understand the greatest joy I can experience is honestly hearing the voice of the Lord myself because it shows me there really is a real relationship. And so that voice that says, like the story we read, that voice that says, Come and sit with me. I've been waiting for you. When we actually have that sense inside of us that God is saying that to us, that's the invitation into the into the presence. But even more, it is the relationship because I'm hearing Him talk. That voice that says... Let me clean the junk out of that closet. You could look at it and go, oh, what a terrible thing. Friends, it's just the opposite. That's the reward. We're in His presence and we experience the reality of, of the living Creator of the universe. We hear that voice that says, let me help you. It says, you have abilities and talents and you're trying to do some good things, but I want to help you do extraordinarily more. Put, let me put my hands around yours and you just relax. Relax and let me help you. That voice and that activity is the reward. This is where true joy and pleasure are experienced. A loving encounter with our Heavenly Father, and that takes place, according to this text, is where in secret. It's tied to the private world of our hearts. You know, church services are great and they're necessary. Matter of fact, I've given a whole bunch of the energy of my entire adult life To creating church services. All the activity. And if you don't, if you're not involved in the inner workings, you have no idea how much goes into doing this. It's a ton. They're good. They're great. They're God's plan. They're essential for our spiritual growth. But they can never replace a life lived in His presence every day. A lot of us try to live that way. I get my fix for an hour and 15 minutes once a week. And then you ask this question, how come it's not more real than it really is? Both I read about it, I hear about it, but I don't experience it. And when you live in that world of the exterior, void of the genuine interior, you then raise children, and you influence co-workers, and you influence neighbors... Who well, you hear you talk about the exterior, but you don't experience the interior, so you don't have the joy that comes with it, and they go, there's really nothing to it. And they walk away from it. That's the truth. The exterior is important, but it can never replace a life lived in His presence every single day. A life lived with a posture towards life where we're seeking a continual awareness of His presence in my heart in everything that I do. You need them both, but the interior must sustain and precede the exterior. Now catch something here. It says in the text, God wants us to practice our righteousness. So that means religious activity. But He says in such a way that it is noticed by Him. In other words, I think He's saying it this way. I want your heart and to be in this way, that you're doing this just between you and me, God. Not to broadcast it, not to sound good, not to look good, but it's just a private matter between me and you, God. I'm not trying to do what somebody else says I have to do. I'm not trying to fulfill some obligation and rules and regulation that somebody else says. It's just between you and me, God. And he says it like this So he says, When you fast, Mark, when you fast, he says, Don't look pathetic. He says, Conceal it. It's just between you and God. It's a spiritual activity that gives God a greater opportunity to be involved in your everyday life. I hope you're beginning to understand that, that very sentence, because if you've not noticed, I've said that very sentence, almost identical to that, probably two or three dozen times in the last couple of weeks about spiritual activities or spiritual disciplines. They are simply activities that give God greater opportunity to be involved in your everyday life. So when you pray, he says, go into your prayer closet and close the door. Just talk to your father alone. It's not for everyone else to see. Why? Because it's a spiritual activity, a spiritual discipline that gives God a greater opportunity to be involved in your everyday life. He says, so when you give to the needy, it's not for your honor. It's to bless God Himself as you care for those that He loves. It's a spiritual activity that gives God a greater opportunity to be involved in your everyday life so that you really experience Him. Church, God is in the secret place. And He wants to bless us with His presence as we turn our attention away from the praise of people and toward just being with him is that making sense now I need to address one more thing before we end today does all this mean that we should never pray in public keep records of our giving or let anyone know when we fast I'd say this that's been said thousands of times hundreds of thousands of times millions of times throughout the 2000 years plus this has been written because a person doesn't understand it in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Does this mean that we should never do any of these things in public? No, not at all. It doesn't mean that. It means that the motives of our heart are what matter. Are we seeking to be more fully in His presence through an activity? Or are we looking simply to fulfill a religious duty, to fulfill the righteousness of, of the scribes and the Pharisees, so that we look good or we fulfill law, what is the motive of our heart? And I'll prove that's what the truth is. Because there's an absolute historical Christian, Judeo-Christian place for corporate prayer. You and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for a corporate prayer meeting. The day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, started with 120, 120 people in an upper room in a prayer meeting. They were together in a prayer meeting, corporate. And that corporate prayer meeting spread out into the streets. It was so real, that prayer meeting spread into the streets, the gifts of the Spirit were demonstrated. It was so real and so public that over 3,000 people witnessed it and gave their lives to Jesus in that one day. Okay, There's a place for corporate prayer. There's a place for corporate fasting. From the beginning of the scriptures till the end, God leads spiritual leaders to call God's people to corporate fasts. Sometimes entire country fasts saying we need to fast and pray and seek God. Matter of fact, the reason that you and I are saved is because of a corporate fast. There's a group of guys led by Paul in the city of Antioch, recorded in Acts 13... And they were in a corporate prayer and fasting meeting, the leaders of the church at Antioch. And in that corporate prayer and fasting meeting, where it says they were all in prayer and fasting, it says the Spirit of God spoke to them and said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And you know what their work was? The first missionary journey. They began to take the gospel across the world. We have heard the gospel because of that prayer meeting and that public fasting. There's a place for public giving. They wouldn't have had the early tabernacle if they didn't corporately publicly call for giving from all the people. And they brought so much that Moses had to say, "Okay, time out. You're giving too much. It was the piles of money. You're giving too much. We don't need any more money." But how about the time Jesus was with his disciples, and they're sitting at the temple, and they're watching people publicly give money at the temple. And Jesus says, you see that little old widow lady over there? She had two little tiny copper coins. She put them in. What did he say about her? She gave more than everybody else. Because she gave out of her want and they gave out of her abundance. Jesus talked about corporate. He watched it. Corporate public giving. The key is that whatever we do must be done for an audience. Of one. That's the key. That whatever we do must be done for an audience of one. We seek to draw close to God and honor God, our Father, in whatever we do. Seeking to become more integrated with Him, closer to Him, spending time with Him. That's the goal of all of it. I'm seeking to be with Him in whatever I do and to honor Him in whatever I do. We long to be alone with Him. Going through the rooms of our life, like the story said, allowing Him to transform us in Christ-likeness from the inside out. We seek the greatest reward. God Himself. And we don't settle for earthly substitutes. But when you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know what? Here's my hope as we've been spending these days in letting, kind of dwelling in the concept of Psalm 1611 in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever. That may be the little dimension we looked at today. Is that in this life, in this week, in the reality of your real life workaday world, you will feel like you want to spend some time alone with God. You're saying, God, this is what I think it is. You're saying I've not, I've, I've theologically built a construct, a framework in my life that says you're real, but because I've never honestly jumped all in, that's what that story is about. My heart, Christ, phone. The end of it is when he goes, I'm all in. Not saying he wasn't right with God and good on the path to heaven in the beginning, but there's a part where we really say, I want to be all in. We stop just doing it on our own, and we have this construct we build that says, you know what? People talk about this reality of a relationship with God, and that's not really real.
0: That's
1: what they say. That's what you think. That's the predominant view in the church world. It's not really real. That what I really have is this external observation of some religious duty. And I hope if I just keep working on doing that, I'll end up in this place called heaven. That's not not the gift that God has for us. He has for us an everyday life in the kingdom with Him where His rule is our rule and we live under the protection of His presence and we literally interact with Him in a way that we know He's saying this closet is full of junk. And we say, partner with me, help me clean out the closet. There's a reality to it. And a lot of times we build this false belief because we say, I've never really experienced it, but I really do believe that God is really real and I really want to go to heaven. And we build this construct that protects us from that. And what it is that really keeping us from experiencing the true blessing that he's trying to give us. And that's what this is talking about. It's saying the way you get it is you go all in. And how do you go all in? You live a life with Him in the secret place. You say, God, you know what? I really want to spend time alone with You. Because in Your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at Your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And God, I really want to experience that. I want to stop settling for just what this world offers. And I promise you, He has more. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe even you feel like that right now and you need to spend some time alone with God right now as we close our service. Here's the reality of being alone with God. You really can be alone with God in the midst of thousands of people. It really is a matter of, of focus. It's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of just saying, God, I want to get alone. So maybe what you want to do as we close the service is you're going to want to come down and spend some time just, just being in the presence of God, kneeling down here and praying. Maybe you want literally you want to sit in your chair and you want to turn around and kneel down in your chair. You say, why kneel down and do this? I find I, when, I, when I do that and I bury my head in there, I'm alone. I can have 10,000 people around me. I'm alone. Because it's just, I'm just kind of tunnel vision to me and God. Maybe you want to do that right now. You can do that by simply closing yourself in with God today. Maybe you're here and you have never really welcomed Jesus into your private world. You know what? You can do that right now. It's a matter of saying, I'm pretty convinced. Like, there's, I'm saying this is what I need. Nothing else is working. And God is offering me life in Him. And I'm saying, okay God, here I am. I want to be with you. It's, it's an alone time thing. You're asking God. Now, somebody can pray with you and that can happen. If you want to talk talk and understand it more and pray about it, I'll be right here. You can join me and I'll pray with you about it. But it's you and God saying, God, here I am. I'm open. I need you. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. Father, here is my prayer and I think it's directed of you. That Lord, if there is this construct we've built in our minds, our theological framework we've built in our lives, that says that yes, God is real, but it's it really don't live in an awareness of Him. That the extent of of our walk with God is is some spiritual goosebumps in a song service in a church. That that's the time I feel the most alive. That's the time I feel the most connected. And God, I thank you for corporate worship. And we understand there's something that happens in a a gathering in your name that doesn't happen anywhere else. But we understand this, God. That you say in your word the greatest blessing is us being alone with you. And that you will reward us for a life lived seeking to connect so that in everything we do, even in a religious service, the intent is to connect with you. And I pray, God, that as we do all the various things we do, that this week, even this moment, that God, there would be this welling up hunger that would say, I just I just want to be with God. That God, there would be the destruction of of the a, of a construct a destruction of a false set of beliefs that we've built up to protect ourselves from being hurt we've protected ourselves we said maybe I tried to go all in with God 30 years ago but it never really seemed to work and therefore I've just I've just boiled it down to my one minute Bible in the morning my little God's word for the day and then showing up for church a couple times a month it's really empty it's really dead and you're saying I'm tired of that that I want to trust God at His word and say that if I seek Him in the secret place that He will meet me there and that we will have a real vital relationship where I experience genuine joy and pleasure so God tear down the false beliefs tear down the self-protecting walls we've built up And God, I pray that you would call us as a church family to get all in. To cast aside some of those things that hold us back and be all in with you. Because God, it's not about earning anything. It's not about making anybody else think that we're spiritual by doing that. It's not about impressing you or anybody else. It's simply that we know when we're with you in the secret, the secret place of spiritual activity that we meet you, then you are our reward. So Father, help us. We're weak. Help us. We have built up these false beliefs. Help us, like the like the person said in the in the short story we read that admitted, I can't do that. But I, but I turn myself over to you. Help us. Because we want all we can in this walk. God, I pray that for this church this must be a place of, filled with people who are just every day of their lives enjoying the goodness of the Lord that loves them so much and it changes and it fills them with love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Because your character becomes our character, what we spend real time. So Father, simply say help us as we say yes to you. Lead us, pull us along, bless us. Because we know you delight in blessing. Your children. So, church, I invite you, if you want to spend some time in prayer, just you alone with God, find a place to pray. Will you feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit? Quietly make your way out of our sanctuary, giving Just quietness and respect to the other people who are praying. Have a wonderful week and may the joy of your life, the highlight of your week, be the time you spend with Jesus this week. God bless you.